Well, thank you for coming out again tonight to continue our series on apologetics. It's really, really been a delight to be with you and look forward to tonight and also to Wednesday night as we finish up our discussion then on the problem of evil. Tonight we're looking at the resurrection of Christ, so you should have a handout that says, Does the Resurrection of Christ Matter? History and Theology of the Resurrection. If you don't have a handout, uh, I'm sure someone can get one for you. Anybody lack it? I don't see any hands. So all of you have it. Okay, that's great. Well, you know, of, uh, of all of the questions that have been asked through the history of the church uh, that have been objections to the Christian faith, this probably has the longest history, this issue. It just is a perpetual question because, of course, we know from 1 Corinthians 15 Uh, Paul has said that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. So there's no Christian faith without the resurrection. So it's no surprise that the evil one would want to try to undermine the resurrection. Goodness, if he could could succeed in doing that, then he has undermined the basis for our confidence that Christ actually has accomplished his atoning death on the cross. And uh, so the resurrection has been under attack really through the centuries of the church It has probably the most perpetual issue that the church has faced is the proof for the resurrection. It is also uh, one of the issues that you face in apologetics that has the most historical, um, factual basis for response. I mean, there is so much in the history that is recorded for us in the Bible for which we have good reason for accepting this as historically reliable that there is to go to in support of the resurrection. So a perpetual question with a lot of good evidence uh, to to bring to bear uh, in a response to it. So we're looking this evening at two areas of the resurrection. First, the historical veracity of the New Testament declaration of the resurrection of Christ. I mean, is it true what the New Testament claims, that he really did rise from the dead? And uh, we'll we'll look at that in the first half of our session together. And then theological importance of the resurrection, ratification of the efficacy of the atonement through Christ's resurrection. And both the history of this and the theology of the resurrection are both very important. The history to know that it really happened, uh, that that it is factually true, because everything depends upon whether or not this is true. But then to understand what, uh, what theological implications come from the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. So we want to look at both of those together and, uh, and uh, just you know, revel in the beauty of the fact that we do serve a risen Savior. He is alive, coming again, and, uh, and will we'll, uh, bring everything under the dominion of, of His own reign. And, uh, and we, by grace, by uh, the, the work of the Spirit, are brought into union with Christ, who is the victor over all. What a glorious thing this is. All right, well, let's begin with the historical veracity of the New Testament declaration of the resurrection of Christ. And you notice in the New Testament that the Gospels declare, all four Gospels declare the resurrection of Christ. It is something, obviously, that each of the Gospel writers believes is important to to state and to, to give the historical circumstances that involve that. You see these, I have the passages there for you, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the resurrection. You also see in the apostolic preaching that the, the resurrection is, is commonly referred to. 
I mean, honestly, I think the resurrection of Christ is more commonly referred to in the preaching you find in the book of Acts than in most evangelistic preaching that we hear today. I don't, I don't know why we have dropped out. You know, we, we talk about the death of Christ, but the, as the New Testament apostles did as well, but they also then talk about Christ being raised from the dead. And we'll look at a few of those in a moment. And then in the epistles, I, I just put a whole bunch of passages here for you to indicate the significance of the resurrection as that is unpacked for us in various letters from Paul and Peter and so on. These are very important passages that refer to the resurrection. Well, to get one sample of the gospel accounts, we could look at any, any of the four, but look with me at Luke's gospel, chapter 24, if you would please. Turning your Bibles to Luke 24, and we'll read uh, verses 1 to 12. Luke 24, verses 1 to 12, that gives us one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Christ. I'll be reading again from the New American Standard translation. Luke 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still with you in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all, the, all these things to the 11 disciples and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them, that is to the apostles, as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So here's one account, you know, of this resurrection that is remarkable on many, many, many respects. Uh, one of them is this, I, you know, one of the evidences for the authenticity of the New Testament writings, in fact, really, you, you can apply this same principle to the whole Bible, it, it are the internal indicators of the truthfulness of what they are depicting. I mean, if you are making up this story, think who Peter and the apostles are to the early church, you know, and who they are to Christ as the people that he has chosen. Would you, if you were making up this story, write it in such a way that the apostles of Christ who were told by him, three days I will be in the tomb and then I will rise again from the dead, that those apostles after the crucifixion of Christ are cowering back in their homes, uh, di di discouraged over what has happened, uh, completely at a loss for what to do next. And when the women who, see, who are the first witnesses of the resurrection come back and tell them, as we read this in verse 11, the words of those women appeared to them as nonsense. Would you write it this way? And obviously the answer is no. I mean, you wouldn't have women being the first witnesses of the resurrection. 
at, in the culture of Judaism at this time, women were not permitted to be witnesses in a court of law. Now, that's not to say anything about the, the rightness or wrongness of it. It's just to state the fact of the matter, that they, they were not permitted as witnesses. So would you, if you were making up the story, put woman, women as the first witnesses? No way you wouldn't do that. Would you, would you make the disciples incredulous that they're doubting this whole thing and, and they're, they're discouraged over what has happened? I mean, no, you would write it with Peter and James and John and the rest of them camped right there at the tomb, waiting for the glorious moment when the stone is rolled away, you know, and they, they're the first ones to greet him. Yes, we knew you would come forward, Christ, you, 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 you son of God. I mean, you would write it that way, but no, indeed. They write it in the way it actually happened. And it's, it's uh, clear by the, uh, just these indicators historically that in fact this is depicting the truth of what took place. Another thing that is very interesting here is that it, it, what we see here is what we see elsewhere and that's Christ only appeared to some people. He, he didn't appear in public to everyone. And again, this fits if you were here on Sunday morning in the Sunday school hour. I mentioned to you that oftentimes the evidence that God puts forward is evidence that is sufficient for those who are given eyes of faith. They see the evidence and they see indeed it does support the truth. There is good reason to believe what God calls us to believe, but it is not evidence that is absolutely in your face and, and could never be denied by any person. God puts his evidence out there typically in a manner that is sufficient for those with faith, but is not uh, something that everybody would agree upon or have access to. So Christ appears only to some. He, appear, he appears to, to, to uh, the disciples in time and to, to some who come along as he chooses to do so. And by that, there is sufficient evidence that indeed he has been raised and yet, uh, uh, he doesn't go public. He doesn't go back into Jerusalem. He doesn't go back to the temple and appear in front of everyone. I mean, I'm sure many of us would, would wish he had, right, you know? Or when, when the atheist proclaims from a, a, a platform like this, and he says, well, if, if there is a God, if he would just bring lightning down upon the building at this moment, I would believe. I mean, you wish he would just do it, right? Uh, you know, in those moments. But typically, God does not act in those ways. He gives enough reason so that people are held accountable for their dismissing the evidence that is there, but reason that really can only be accessed and understood and embraced when the Spirit works in the heart of the person to bring them to faith, to see it rightly, to see it and accept it as true. So this account of the resurrection of Christ in Luke is typical of what we find in the Gospel writers uh, of the women coming to the tomb, uh, they, they were going to anoint the body of Jesus. I mean, none of them were expecting him to be raised, right? Even though Jesus had declared this a number of times, they were not expecting the resurrection to take place. I mean, it just, you know, another thing this indicates is how it requires the Spirit within all of us. This is true for us today as well. The Spirit has to work within us to help us see as true and understand rightly even some of the most obvious things that are right there in front of us. Like Jesus saying, three days I will be in the tomb and then I will rise again, and they were not expecting that. It's really remarkable. So the women are surprised. 
Peter comes, he is surprised, and what they see when they get there is this cloth, we'll talk more about this in a bit, this cloth that wrapped up the body of Jesus that was there by itself. In John's gospel, it indicates that the head cloth was folded separately. So you have Jesus coming out of this cloth that would have been, I mean, goodness, estimates are from, from historical evidence that we have, archaeological evidence, at least 170 pounds of material were wrapped around because they didn't want the stench of the odor to escape any more than, than necessary. So they, they used a heavy cloth, wrapped these bodies that were scented cloths, and wrapped them over and over and over again. I mean, a cocoon type of wrapping, there is no way that you could get out of it unless you cut it open. But here it was, completely enclosed on its own. And they were astonished at what they saw. And the head cloth in John's gospel set, uh, uh, put on the side, folded up separately. <clears throat> so, indeed, the gospel accounts make clear that this is a literal bodily resurrection. This is not some metaphorical, spiritual kind of resurrection in the way liberals try to think of the resurrection of Christ. Oh, he is alive in you and me as the spirit of Christ continues. Well, of course, we hope that's true in another sense, but this is a description of a literal bodily resurrection. And now to, to the apostolic preaching. Just look with me at some of these passages where the resurrection of Christ is highlighted. Acts 2.24, I'm just going to re read them very quickly. You can look in your Bibles as well if you wish. Acts 2.24, Paul has, uh, I'm sorry, Peter has just spoken of Christ who was nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. But then verse 24, but God raised him again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Then verses 31 and 32, what, what uh, God had said through David he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Acts 3.15. Uh, but they put, him to, they put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man which you see and know. Acts 3.26, uh, for, for, uh, for you first God raised up the servant, his servant, and sent him to bless you, turning away everyone. I, I got the wrong verse here, didn't I? I'm sorry. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, God raised up his servant. So the resurrection of Christ indicated again. Uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel, but by, by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands before you in good health. And on and on, there are a number of other examples in the book of Acts where the resurrection of Christ is, is uh, celebrated and put in front the front stage as something that that uh, makes all the difference in believing who Christ is and what he accomplished. And then in the epistles of, uh, of the New Testament, in, in, the, in the book of Romans, goodness, look at all those verses I have listed for you there, just in Romans alone, and Corinthians, and, 
and uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, these passages of the New Testament, I won't take time to go through them. I put them here so you could look at them later, but the resurrection of Christ is tied to our justification. The resurrection of Christ is tied to our new life that we receive. He's, he's, we are with him, united with him in his death and resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is tied to eternal life, the life that we will receive with him forever. So it is very clear that the historical record announces the truth of Jesus' resurrection. The apostles declare it in their preaching, and the epistles of the New Testament underline the significance of this to the whole of the Christian life. Beco coming to faith in Christ, growing in Christ, being united in him, and ultimately being like him who has been raised. We will be raised as he was raised. So the whole of the Christian life is connected not only to the death of Christ, but his resurrection as well. So it is a very important truth that is non-negotiable for Christian people, uh, that Christ not only died for our sins, but rose again the third day. Now, as apologists look at the resurrection of Christ, they're aware of the fact that there have been historically four main objections that have been raised to the resurrection of Christ, or at least four ways of trying to account for the resurrected Christ apart from accepting the history uh, of what we have in the New Testament. And, and those four theories really are answered by four facts of the resurrection, historical facts that surround the resurrection of Christ. The first theory that was put forward to try to deny the resurrection of Christ is sometimes called the swoon theory, that Christ did not die on the cross, but rather he swooned. He was very weak and, uh, and, 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 uh, um, and injured, and so he fainted, as it were, on the cross. It appeared that he had died, according to this theory, but he didn't actually die. And in the cool tomb in which he was placed, he revived. He, he came back, as it were, not, not resurrected life, but came back to, to strength of life and escaped from the tomb and appeared then to his disciples as if he had been raised from the dead. But instead, he had just really woken up from a, a fainted stupor. And, and uh, th this theory uh, just ha has a lot of problems attached to it, but it has been a long-standing theory. So many people uh, have, have gone in this direction of saying, oh, he didn't really raise, he just swooned on the cross. But consider with me some of the historical evidence that Christ actually did die on the cross. I mean, consider with me, for example, the extent of the suffering of Jesus leading up to the crucifixion. I mean, the trial of Jesus was just uh, not only psychologically and spiritually uh, agonizing, it was physically agonizing with the whipping that took place, the scourging, uh, the scourges that were used that likely would have been used with Jesus were scourges that were made of leather tongs with metal, sharp metal pieces that were attached all the way along those metal tongs. And these straps were long, and so when they would whip someone, they would wrap around, grab their, grab their skin, and then they would pull and rip off hunks of flesh. So th this scourging that Jesus endured would have inflicted enormous injury and tremendous blood loss that would have uh, occurred to his back as, as he was uh, whipped by those who were trying him. 
And of course, you know, also they beat him with rods. They put a crown of thorns on his head and beat him. And the blood loss, again, there would have been significant as well. And of course, then, then they have him carry his cross. And we know that he was in such a weakened condition by that point. I mean, a man who had, who had uh, traveled his whole life, who, who had, had walked many, many miles and no doubt was in excellent physical shape, but to carry that cross, he, he fell under the burden of it, and they had to get another to assist him to carry that cross the rest of the way. So you realize the weakened condition of Christ. This is even before he is put on the cross. Then you add to that what happened to him on the cross itself. For nails pierce his hands, pierce his feet, which would have again added to the blood loss that he had. You think of the injuries to his back, to his head, to his hands, to his feet, and, and how much he would have of blood he would have lost in that time. And then uh, among the most agonizing parts of that crucifixion would have been uh, the, the fact that in order to breathe, uh, on, th this, is, this is one of the reasons that crucifixions were so tortuous, were, were so agonizing to, the, to those who, who were crucified, is that in order to, bleed, to, to breathe, you would have to lift yourself up. So, so your feet were, were nailed at the, usually the feet put together like this, were nailed together, and you would have to push yourself up. Sometimes if they were merciful, they would put a platform for your feet to push against. Other times, it would just be the nail through your feet that you would have to press against. You can imagine how painful that would be. And you would press up, breathe, and then let yourself down. And you wouldn't do that all the time because if you were whipped as Jesus was, then your back is rubbing against that rough timber as you go up and down. And you don't do that any more often than you have to. But still, to take a breath, a deep breath, you, you lift yourself up again to breathe and then let yourself back down. So who knows uh, how many times Jesus had to do this, but finally, he died from asphyxiation. Uh, it, you know, when the soldiers came, the Roman soldiers came, uh, with orders to take down the three who were being crucified. They had to get this done because the Sabbath was about to begin, which, which begins at dusk, as you know, on Friday. So the sun is about to set. They have to make sure that those three men all are dead. Well, they came to Jesus, and they realized they didn't need to break his legs. Now, you, re you realize from what I said a moment ago why breaking the legs would promote death, because then the, the person can't push up anymore and so they're in this slumped position where they die because they, they cannot breathe sufficiently. In a matter of moments, they're out. They're gone. And so rather than breaking Jesus' legs because, well, Scripture said his bones will not be broken, you know. So it fulfilled that prophecy. But they realized he was dead already. And one of the things they did to confirm his death was to spear him in the side. And out of him came, do you remember I think this is in John's gospel, came water and blood. And the separation of the fluids indicated that death had already taken place, probably within at least an hour earlier for that much separation of the fluids to already have happened. So at least an hour earlier, he had died. And of course, these men were experienced in this. This was their vocation, if you can believe it. Can you imagine uh, ha having that as your job, You know, be be being one who is there for crucifixions and uh, attending all that takes place. So they, they knew what that sign indicated. When, when, the water, when, when the water and blood were separated, they knew death had already taken place. 
So rather than break his legs, they took him down because they knew he was dead already. So when you put all that together, it just is really, really highly unlikely. I mean, so improbable as, as to be ridiculous, honestly, to believe that Jesus did not die on that cross. Now, take the swoon theory one step further. The theory goes on to say, I mean, it won't do any good merely to say he swooned on the cross if he ends up staying in the grave, right? So then it goes on to say that he revived in the tomb. Well, how is that going to work when there's no medical attention, no water given to him, nothing that can be used that would bring restoration to his weary, weakened, uh, emaciated body? What, what, What possible way could he be revived and gain strength when nothing is provided for him and furthermore he's wrapped in this 770 pounds of cocoon like wrappings where he is bound entirely there is no way he can free himself you can't cut through this i mean you can't tear it with your hands his hands are down anyway i mean just really there's nothing you could do to get yourself out of it and when the disciples came I mean, isn't it remarkable what we read in Scripture? They see the whole thing together. The, the, the cloths that Jesus was wrapped in all together, which indicates he escaped miraculously out of that cocoon, that those wrappings that he was put within. So if you think, well, could it have happened then that Jesus you know, was resuscitated within the tomb? That seems so very, very unlikely. Could he escape the wrappings that were around him? That seems very, very unlikely. And then, on top of that, you have to also consider the stone that was rolled in front of the door, which in normal cases, I mean, in Israel, you can still see places where these kinds of of stones were used. They're not round stones, you know, round all the way around like a ball. It's more like a disc. So they're they're rolled like this, right? Not, Not... Uh, Not a whole ball that rolls up, but like a frisbee, like a disc, flat, but but round, that's rolled over in front of the door. So it's not the kind of thing that you can just push out. You have to roll it back, and it rolls downhill to go in place. You have to have at least five men, usually, because of the weight of these stones, to be able to push the thing back up, uphill, to open the the door uh, of, of the tomb. And uh, is, is Jesus in this weakened condition, now he's escaped from his, his wrappings, going to roll that stone? And then you've got one other thing, the Roman guards. Wouldn't they see this? You know. So honestly, you put all these things together and you realize it just is not at all a plausible theory to say that Jesus swooned on the cross, resuscitated in the tomb, moved the stone away by himself, escaped from the guards without their notice, and then appears to all of them as if he has raised from the dead. I mean, goodness, what would he look like? You know, he would look like a beaten, worn man, not a raised Jesus. So you put all that together and realize it is just an implausible theory, this swoon theory, yet it is one that has been held uh, by, by so many people simply because they do not want to accept the, the, the truth of the historical record that Jesus rose from the dead. Here's a second objection or a second theory that has been proposed to explain the resurrection of Christ. It is that when the women went to the, to, to 
uh, anoint the body of Jesus, they went to the wrong tomb. Ah, and what did they find at the wrong tomb? There's no body here. So they go back and report to the apostles, there's no body here, and they went and saw the tomb, and it's empty, and they conjured up then this belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They made it up based upon false uh, evidence, at least, at least the evidence that they didn't know was false, but actually was false, uh, that they were at the wrong tomb all the time. But again, this theory is just highly implausible. I mean, for one thing, we know that the gospel writers indicate that Jesus was buried in a known tomb. This was the tomb of a rich man. It was his tomb that they took Jesus to rather than one of the common tombs where, where they, they would bury many people together, kind of like a mass burial tomb. They had those also. But they had these individual tombs that, that wealthy people could buy ahead of time and have prepared for them. And so Jesus was buried in this known tomb. Furthermore, the women who came Sunday morning to anoint his body followed them as he was buried. So they knew precisely which tomb he was taken to. They were observed by these women. You can see this in Mark and Matthew and Luke. All of them uh, talk about this. Nicodemus also watched them bury Christ. He knew where the body was. The tomb was sealed by Roman guards. And when their seal is put upon it, that is an indication. I mean, it's a, as it were, official declaration. He is here and he cannot be moved. I mean, to break that seal uh, of the Roman guard and take his body out would be a capital offense. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, you, you would not do that. So they certified that it's the body of Jesus who was there before they sealed that tomb, knowing he was there and he could not be taken away. And then, and then, as I mentioned a moment ago, Sunday morning, these women come back to the very tomb they knew where he had been placed. They were witnesses of where Jesus had been taken. So you wonder, could, could, this, could this then be uh, uh, the wrong tomb that they went to? Well, it just does not seem uh, at all plausible that this would be the case, given all of these factors. Furthermore, given the report of the apostles of the early church, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, if they had gone to the wrong tomb, what do you think the Romans would have done? <laughs> they, they, they would have presented the body of Jesus, the, the, dead, the dead Jesus from the tomb where he really was. But of course, they couldn't do that. There was no body that they could bring forward or any, anyone else could bring forward because he, he simply was not there. There was no place for this. And then furthermore, the linen wrappings that were there. You just you have to account for this cocoon-like, unbroken linen wrappings that the disciples found when, when they the women found and then the disciples found when they went to the tomb. I mean, this was not a matter of somebody cutting open the wrappings, but it had to have been a miraculous re, uh, 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 re resurrection of the person from those wrappings uh, in order to account for that. And uh, and th then you have uh, also the fact that everything that the apostles preached on depended upon the truth of that empty tomb. And, and it was because of that and the appearances of Christ that came later, of course, that, uh, that gave them the confidence in their preaching that the, uh, the resurrection of Christ was a reality that had taken place. 
Now, what, one more feature of this empty tomb theory is it really only works if you tie to it the fourth theory that we'll look at in a moment, and that is the hallucination theory. So, uh, you know, if, if they went to the wrong tomb, but then report Jesus is alive, well, what is it they, they are reporting when they say, we have seen him, we have witnessed his resurrection? And, of course, the answer is, if he's still in a grave out there and he really hasn't been raised, then they have to be either lying about this or they're having hallucinations about it. So let me, I'll come back to that one in a moment. But the hallucination theory is fraught with problems as well. So two historical facts seem very strongly supported. One, that he actually did die. And of course, the, I, I, I think I didn't mention this. I should have. The, the death of Christ really matters, right? Because you don't have resurrection without death. This is not the resuscitation of Jesus. You know, this is the resurrection of one who has died. So, yes, he really did die. And second, he really was taken to a known tomb, and his body was placed there. Then third, the actually, okay, this is the third one, it is the hallucination theory. Uh, that that uh, the argument goes that the disciples of Jesus, because of their anticipation of uh, the, the resurrected Christ, uh, Christ's teaching that he would be raised from the dead, their, their hope that this would be true, they conjured up in their own minds a, a kind of psychological state that made them prone to hallucinations of Christ, uh, thinking that, in fact, he had been raised from the dead. But actually, they were just these psychological experiences that didn't, did, not, did not reflect the reality of Christ being with them. They were just psychological projections, hallucinations that they had. Well, consider this theory with me for a moment. I mean, one of the main problems with the uh, hallucination theory is the variety of people and situations in which the resurrected Christ appeared. I mean, usually if you have a hallucination, it's not a crowd of people who have the same hallucination, right? You have a person who perhaps has a hallucination one day and the same one another day. There can be a repetition with the same person of the same hallucination. But what has never been documented is a hallucination that is commonly experienced, you know, that isn't, that isn't something that they actually all see. But here you'd have to say that it was a a common hallucination that many people saw. How many? Well, there are the women who saw Jesus at the tomb. Now, Luke's account doesn't indicate they're seeing Jesus, but, but they're, both Matthew and John indicate that they also saw him before they went back to the disciples. Matthew 28, John 20 indicate them. So the women at the tomb were the first ones to witness the risen Christ. Peter saw him. John saw him. The 12 witnessed his resurrection. And then we know from 1 Corinthians 15, up to 500 people witnessed the resurrected Christ. In fact, when Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and 500 people, uh, uh, many of whom are not asleep, wit witness Christ's resurrection. And the point of saying many of whom are not asleep, that is, they are not dead, the point of saying that is obvious. If you don't believe me, Go ask them. I mean, we have these witnesses out there, abundant witnesses 
that uh, know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He, he also appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. He, he appeared to James, uh, Jesus' half-brother. He appeared to all of the apostles. He appeared finally to Paul, Saul, who became Paul the apostle. Now, you look at all of those different settings, different groupings of people, different numbers, different, different occasions, and you realize the notion of the same hallucination being present in all of those different cases is just ridiculous because they all spoke of Jesus in the same way, as, as the same Lord they had known before, the same one who had walked among them, the same one who had taught them, and so on, was now raised from the dead. Even though at first, for example, the women were disbelieving, and so they didn't recognize him right at first because, honestly, they weren't prepared for this. Why they weren't? Wow, isn't that amazing? Uh, you know, that they, they, despite what Jesus taught them, they just weren't looking for it. They, they didn't comprehend that this was literally going to take place. But then when they saw them, they recognized him, heard his voice, recognized his voice, and knew that he had been, risen, been raised from the dead. And then another thing about these hallucinations is they, they simply don't account for features of the resurrected Christ in certain of these cases. For example, eating fish with his disciples. I mean, that's quite a hallucination that, that involves a meal together, you know? How does that work, you know? But they, they are eating, they are preparing food over the fire uh, and, and having this meal together. Um, having a conversation with him in which he talks to them. I mean, think of the conversation in John 20 that took place between Christ and Thomas. Come, touch my hands, my side. Be not unbelieving, but believing. I mean, th these are real-life experiences that uh, don't have any of the earmarks of some kind of, of uh, psychological state of mind. They indicate something really that happened. They touched Jesus. They talked with him. They ate with him. They walked with him. Uh, the, the two on the road to Emmaus. I mean, you notice when Jesus disappeared from their midst. This is in Luke 24. When they broke bread. Ah, what did they see when they broke bread together? So he had been talking with them on the road. It was getting late. They turned aside to stay at a home for the evening. And they were breaking bread together. And in the breaking of the bread, they recognized who he was. What would they have seen? Ah, the nail-pierced hands of Christ. So there they see him. And Jesus disappeared from their midst just like that at that moment. So, I mean, the, these are earmarks of real historical interaction and meeting, not hallucinations that take place. So we have this then, this third historical fact, as it were. Christ died. He really did die on the cross. He was, he was put into, his body was put into an empty tomb that was known and recognized. Uh, his appearances cannot be accounted for by uh, uh, hallucinations or visions that they had. They had so many earmarks of real historical uh, 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 aspects to them that can't, can't be discounted by that theory. And then finally, the last fact is the transformation of the lives of those apostles who witnessed his resurrection. I mean, the transformation is remarkable. And you think, if they were making up this story of Jesus being raised from the dead, would they have endured the kind of persecution? Would, would they have stuck with the story it, it, unless they were convinced that it was true? I mean, the, the, the change in Peter 
is perhaps the most amazing, isn't it? I mean, just, you know, the, the night in which Jesus was betrayed itself, you know, P Peter is at the fire and he denies Christ three times. And then after he has witnessed the risen Christ, he is boldly declaring the truth of the resurrection of Christ and, and uh, stands at Pentecost, you know, and proclaims the gospel, uh, including twice referring to the resurrection of Christ, then tells others he is one of those who has witnessed the risen Christ. And that becomes a very important platform in his ministry as the apostle Peter. So the, this transformation that takes place is something that is so remarkable. They are so committed. It cannot be explained by a conspiracy, a lie that has been accepted by all of them. I mean, one of the problems with a conspiracy theory that the disciples all banded together and agreed to tell the same story, you know, we've all seen Jesus raised from the dead, is it only takes one weak link to break the conspiracy, right? It just, just takes one of those people who, who now under pressure, under persecution, uh, un, under threat of, uh, of welfare or life, they cave in and then the whole thing is over. And, uh, uh, and plus, if it were not true, goodness, the Romans would have done everything they could have to produce the body. And never was, was, did that happen. So it, it does look as though none of these theories, these naturalistic theories that attempt to explain the resurrection of Christ work, that the only one that actually works is one that fits the historical facts, that Jesus Christ really was uh, crucified and he died on that cross. His body was taken to a tomb that was known. In his resurrection, he appeared to many different people who witnessed his, his, uh, his life after death, that he has been raised from the dead, and, uh, and they became then witnesses with great boldness and great confidence, even at the risk of their own life, uh, and, and uh, died for that. I mean, goodness, we know Peter, for example, at least the history, uh, uh, the tradition tells us that Peter died crucified upside down. So, I mean, he went all the way through the whole of his life, never once giving in, you know, to any kind of pressure to deny the resurrection of Christ. He was committed to it to the very end, as all of the apostles were. So indeed, the best evidence is that Christ really was raised from the dead. Uh, I mean, goodness, people believe these other things if they wish to, but if you want to go with the evidence, the evidence clearly lines up here, that Jesus truly was raised from the dead. Now, theological importance of this. We move on to, to Roman numeral two. Theological importance of the resurrection. And here, I, I did mention this briefly uh, in, uh, in our session uh, Sunday morning when we talked about different aspects of uh, proving that Christ alone was sufficient to be Savior. At that point, I mentioned the resurrection, that only one who has been raised from the dead qualifies as Savior. So let me just expand on that here because this is a very important point to see uh, why, why it is that the resurrection matters. First of all, look with me at 1 Corinthians 15. For just a moment, I want you to see yourself uh, the uh, the significance of what Paul writes here. First Corinthians fifteen, he declares the gospel to us in verses three and uh, three to five. He says, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received." 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he appeared. And then he goes through a whole list of the appearances of Christ in, in the following verses. But notice the two parts of the gospel, Christ died according to the scriptures and he was buried. So there is biblical support, no, no doubt thinking back to a passage like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, where Christ died for our sins, uh, his, his body was broken for our sin and so on. Uh, but, but then uh, he says, and he was buried. So there's the historical evidence. You bury people who are dead. You don't bury living people. So uh, he, 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 uh, he, was, uh, he died for our sins biblically, that it attests to that. Historically, it attests to that. And then he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Psalm 1610, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter quotes that passage from Psalm 1610 on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So biblical support, and then, and he appeared, empirical support. So we see that there are these two elements of the gospel. Christ died and he raised, and he was raised. But notice that in regard to the death of Christ, it says, uh, Paul says here, Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins. And it's that for our sins that is fascinating because it, you might think that if, if Christ died for our sins, that the death of Christ is all you need. You don't need a resurrection to follow. As long as he just dies, whether he stays dead or not is irrelevant. The fact is he died for our sins. So you, you might think the resurrection just doesn't matter. Whether that happens or not uh, is, is, is irrelevant to the efficacy of what, what Christ did on the cross because he accomplished the work on the cross. The resurrection is a nice extra, but it doesn't have to happen. You might think that. Well, Paul in this chapter indicates to the contrary that the resurrection of Christ is essential. So look with me at verses 16 and 17. Here he says, to those who would say that resurrections don't happen, the Sadducees in particular uh, held that view that resurrections cannot take place. So Paul says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Ah, so this raises the question of, of the logical connection between the death of Christ for our sins and why the resurrection of Christ is necessary or without it, we are still in our sins. You see that? So if, if the death of Christ really works, it can only be demonstrated by the resurrection that follows. If the resurrection doesn't follow, then, then he hasn't actually paid for our sins. What's the logical connection? And I think the answer to this is in understanding what sin is to us. It is a twofold problem for every one of us. Sin is both, fa faces us both with a penalty that we cannot pay and with a power that we cannot overcome. It's a penalty that we cannot pay and it is a power that we cannot overcome. On the penalty side of things, we realize that that we cannot pay the penalty of sin. Uh, the, pe the, the wages of sin is death, 
uh, it, it, when we die, we stay in a tomb forever. That is, we, we are separated from God forever because of our sin. We can't pay it off. There, there's nothing we can do to avoid the payment for our sin, apart from Christ, of course, and, and nothing we can do that would ever satisfy the payment so that the end of the payment would come and we be united with God. So that penalty is a penalty that we pay for eternally. Hence, hell is eternal because the payment for sin never, is, never ends. So the penalty of sin is something we cannot pay. We, can, we cannot uh, satisfy the just demands of God against our sin. And the other problem with sin is the power that it has over us. And that power that sin has over us is manifold. It, 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 you know, it's really ugly, isn't it? I mean, sin is the most hideous, most ugly thing that has happened in all of, uh, uh, of the history of the, of the world that God has made. Uh, sin breeds within us contempt and jealousy and anger and bitterness and, and all kinds of horrific things. All of those things we have some minimal capacity to try to fight against. But the one thing that sin can do to us over which we have no recourse is it can kill us. And that, that power of sin to bring us to death is something we can't avoid. I mean, goodness, we try to, don't we? You know, in, in every way, Americans this, in this age are trying to overcome the, the effects of aging and, 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 and avoid death. But it is inevitable, is it not? Unless, of course, Christ comes again at this moment. We, you know, we, we all in this room are in the process. Well, that's not quite right. There are some really young folks here. Uh, most of us in this room are in the process of dying. It's just, just the fact of the matter. And, uh, and sin has that power over us to bring us to death. Well, sin is both a penalty that we cannot pay and a power that we cannot overcome. Now, if Christ died for our sin, then it must mean he pays the penalty and he conquers the power, right? So then the next question is, well, what is that penalty of sin? And it's very clear from the Bible that the penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the penalty of sin is death. What is the greatest power of sin? It also is death. So then you think about this. Well, if Christ died for our sins, that means he paid the full penalty. Okay, just th think of that thought for a moment. He paid the full penalty. But if the penalty of sin is death and he's paid the penalty fully, then what is the only way it can be demonstrated that the penalty is fully paid? Answer, resurrection. Do you see it? If he stays in the grave, he keeps paying the penalty. Only when he is raised from the dead can it be demonstrated that the penalty was paid fully. Same thing with the power of sin. If the greatest power that sin has is death, and Christ died for our sin, well, that means he conquered sin's greatest power. But if he conquered sin's greatest power by his death, then what is the only way it can be shown that sin truly has been conquered? Resurrection, as he is raised from the dead. If he remains in the grave, sin's power is greater than his. Sin's power has conquered him. If he stays in the grave, he keeps paying the penalty. It hasn't been paid fully. So in both cases, 
the penalty of sin being paid fully, the power of sin being conquered fully, is only demonstrated by the resurrection. So I think this is the way that we should reconcile 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins, with 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sin. Here's the way to reconcile these. And that is, not that the resurrection of Christ removes sin. I don't think that's the point. But rather, the resurrection of Christ demonstrates necessarily the necessary expression of the fact that the death of Christ really did work. It really did succeed in paying the full penalty of sin. How can that be expressed? What's the only way that can be expressed? Being raised from the dead. That the death of Christ really did conquer sin's power. What is the only way that can be shown? By being raised from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ is not itself the payment, but the resurrection of Christ is the necessary demonstration, the ratification, the vindication, the demonstration that the death of Christ worked. Praise be to God, when we look at Christ risen from the dead, we know the penalty of sin is paid fully. The power of sin is broken completely by what he has done on our behalf. So I, I think, uh, for example, of a, of a couple verses of hymns, songs that are so meaningful in light of this. You think, for example, of the third verse of It Is Well With My Soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. I mean, isn't that just a glorious statement of the reality of all of our sin born by Christ, all of it paid for by what he has accomplished? Or uh, a more, more recent song, uh, Before the Throne of God Above, the second verse, When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Praise be to God. I, I, my friends, I mean, we, we live, we, we, we serve a risen Savior. He really did conquer sin. He really did pay the penalty. He really is the only Savior there is. And by faith, and faith alone, he's ours. He's your Savior. He's my Savior as we put our trust in Him alone. Oh my, what a gracious God who has granted us such a glorious and rich salvation through the, through the powerful work of His Son who did everything necessary, none of which we could do. None of which we could do. He did all of it on our behalf to free us from the 
penalty of sin and to give us resurrection life power over the power of sin. Thanks be to God for Jesus, our crucified and risen Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege tonight of being able to consider together these glorious truths of Christ who really has been raised from the dead. We realize as we look at the historical record that there is no other acceptable answer for, for why it is that uh, Christ is, is not found in that empty tomb. And that is he was raised from the dead. And we glory in the truth of that. We realize that our hope resides in the fact that his death really was efficacious as demonstrated by the necessity of his resurrection. So Lord, fill us with hope. Fill us with confidence in believing and living uh, with, with the reality that we do serve the risen Savior, Jesus, who is coming again one day, and we will be with you and with him forever because of what he has done for us in his costly death on the cross and his glorious resurrection to newness of life. We pray this with confidence and hope and great joy in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen.